Well, my uh, favorite Christmas movie uh, is Home Alone, the first one. The, the other two don't count at all, uh, but I love the first one. And one of my favorite scenes in it, uh, oddly enough, is where um, they're up in Buzz's bedroom, and old man Marley is out, and he is cleaning off the sidewalk. And as he's cleaning off the sidewalk, he has a large trash can full of salt. He has a, that, those large, you know, massive snow shovels. And he's cleaning off the sidewalk. And when he is, uh, they, they look down. Um, Buzz has gathered everyone at the window. And, and you see them peering out the window at old man Marley. And he looks so ominous and he looks uh, just straight scary. Right, And so he's cleaning off the sidewalk and Buzz tells the story of what he does night after night and goes out. And indeed the salt in the trash can is used for his dead bodies. And when they get to that point, all of a sudden old man Marley turns around and looks. And when he does, he uh, sees them. They see him. They close immediately uh, the uh, curtains and run in fear. But it's later in the movie that uh, Kevin is in a bit of trouble, uh, a lot of trouble. He's hanging by a nail on the back of the door of a neighbor's house when it is old man Marley, if you recall, who comes to his aid, doesn't he? He comes in to that house with that same shovel, and he takes that shovel and whacks the intruder up uh, on the backside of the head and saves Kevin's life. Uh, Kevin now knows the real old man Marley. Well, I'm convinced that There are some of you in the room who uh, have a view of God which is much like the kids peering out that uh, frosted window uh, onto old man Marley cleaning off the sidewalk. Your view of God is uh, is skewed a bit. You, You see him as a cosmic killjoy who is waiting for his next victim of uh, sin and failure and mistake. And this morning it is my desire to introduce you, reintroduce you, to, to show you him straight from God's word. This certainly was the case for the Israelites. Their last scene of God working or not working as they perceived it is that they are exiled. They are, they are made to leave And as they are made to leave their nation, they go miles away to Babylon. And there in Babylon, they receive this word from Ezekiel, who is also exiled with them. He writes from within. He knows where they are. He is one of them. And uh, the picture that we get of God here can be troubling. I have, we have in our house, we could be uh, a tat OCD. We have on our fridge one magnet, all right? Not loads, just one. Connie Scott, who's sitting here, gave it to me, and it says, don't make me come down there, God. That's, that's all it says. And uh, this is one of those scenes here. And we discover from this interaction uh, three ways in which God works. Number one, why God does what he does. Look at verse um, 
uh, uh, verse uh, 22. And when you look at verse 22, it says, therefore. And the old hermeneutical principle, when you see the word therefore, look what it's therefore works here. Uh, Therefore say to the house of Israel. So let's go to verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land. They defiled it by their ways and their deeds. This is God talking. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. Vivid language to describe Israel's sin. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations, to which they came. How did they go out? King Nebuchadnezzar came storming in, and when he did, there was one king, last king of Israel, named Zedekiah. Zedekiah had sons. King Nebuchadnezzar, when he came into Israel, into Judah, into Jerusalem, he took King Zedekiah. He took his sons He marched his sons in front of them, and while Zedekiah watched, executed every single one of them. And so that would be the last thing etched in Zedekiah's memory. He then gouged out Zedekiah's eyes, put shackles on him, and led him now into Babylon. And the people saw Zedekiah in chains, and they saw Israel in bonds, and they saw the sadness on their faces, and they said to themselves, These are the people of the Lord? Israel embarrassed God. What happens when you or I embarrass God? Look at his response, 22. Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. At first, when you hear that or read that, you think, well, God is this grand egotist. He's just about his name. He's saying, I'm going to take care of business, but I'm going to do it for my name, not for your sake. God, why would you ever do this for your name and not their sake? Years ago, as a youth minister, kid in our youth group, received a call. I think it was early on a Saturday morning. That kid had decided to get with some other kids, high school senior. And they decided, the group of them, to go house to house in three different counties, breaking into these homes still invaluable things, watches and necklaces and rings, guns, things of sentimental value to the people who lost them. 
And then when they discovered that the cops were onto them, those, that party of people, this group of teenage boys took all those things and dumped them in the river, never to be recovered again for those people who had lost things very important, sentimental, and valuable to them. Indeed, they were arrested, and this young man was sitting in jail. His parents were people of great means. They had a lot of money, but they said to me over the phone, we're not busting him out. He can sit there. He can experience what it feels like to be there. We'll get an attorney for him. He will pay us back. So it was that they got an attorney, and he got out, and when he did, they drove him straight to my office I sat down with this kid, and we began to talk. God began to do a work in him that was uh, truly seemed to be of the Lord. And as a matter of fact, before his trial date, he had begun to work and save money uh, to be able to pay back the people, at least the, the monetary value of everything he had stolen. He had a list. It was in the thousands of dollars that he had to pay back. And he began to work to do that. I remember the day we went to court. I sat in that courtroom as this young man heard all these charges. It was a long list of charges read against him. That judge read one after another, after another, after another as we sat there. And then the judge said, if I were to total the years uh, of, uh, of, of imprisonment, you could get, uh, this of course is a felony, on all of these charges put together, it exceeded 100 years. 18-year-old kid sitting there, staring down the rest of his life. But then the judge did something that I don't think I'll ever forget. Before he pronounced his sentence on this young man, he turned and he said, Young man, I want you to direct your attention to a picture hanging on the wall. Well, of course, we all did. He said, Do you see that man in that picture? Young man, that is your grandfather. He presided over this court for many years. If he were sitting in my place today, what would he think? You have embarrassed him. You have profaned his name. I got scared just sitting there. I'm not this guy, and this judge is zeroing in on, and I'm thinking, this is about to be awful. The judge handed down his sentence. I found it to be quite gracious. That young man is married with three children today, serving as a deacon in his church. He embarrassed his family. That's what Israel has done. How's God going to work? Look at this. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Here's what I find to be utterly fascinating and grabs my attention. The way God is going to vindicate his holy name is not by getting rid of the Israelites, but through them 
Did you see that? When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God is saying, I will get my name back. And the way I will get my name back is not in spite of you, but through you. Well, this is rather surprising. You would think that God, who is apparently angry here, would just shelve them. But what I would say to you, to me this morning, was a great reminder as I prepared this sermon a couple of weeks ago is this. We forget the name of God. And this morning, I want to reintroduce you to him. I want you to meet him perhaps all over again for the first time. You say, what do you mean? Here's his name in in Exodus 34, 5, 6, and 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, Moses, there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. That's just an interesting sentence. The Lord proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed Here's his name. Look how long it is. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. To the third and the fourth generation. That's his name. There it is. It's not one word. It's a list of words. Who is, he? Who is he? He is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He abounds in love. He abounds in faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love for thousands. He forgives iniquity, transgression, sin, and he does not clear the guilty. Bound up in the name of God is love and justice, grace and truth, love and discipline. What do the Babylonians think when they see his people looking like this? God's abandoned them. He's forgotten them. He's nowhere to be found. Why? They, believe it or not, before the exile, took their own children and sacrificed them to other gods. Their own kids. They of their own people forced them into slavery. They adopted so many ways of the people around them that before they made it to Babylon, they looked like Babylon already. That's what they did. So when the Babylonians come in They see Zedekiah, eyes gouged and bleeding, shackles. That's their king, they ask. These are the people of the Lord. Could I ask you some questions this morning? I told my wife this week that this sermon was so tough, I 
thought perhaps I wouldn't show up today. What do your neighbors think when they hear the loud music late at night, see the cars coming and going, know you more by the beer in your hand than the love in your heart? These are the people of the Lord. What do your coworkers think when you, they watch you berate your staff, belittle your boss, or bemoan your job? These are the people of the Lord? What do the football players, the lacrosse players, the soccer players, the volleyball players, the basketball players, the baseball, softball players on your team think when you tell the same jokes they tell and make fun of the same people they make fun of. These are the people of the Lord. What do your children think when you leave your wife for another woman, leave your Husband for another man. Mom, dad, you are the people of the Lord? What do your followers on Instagram and Facebook think when you post almost naked pictures of yourself that are fit only for a men's magazine? She is a person of the Lord? Why God does what he does? For his namesake. Well, what does he do? It's what God doesn't do that's more surprising, I think, to us than what he does. God doesn't give up. God doesn't give up. His arm is long. The next few verses are filled with I will statements. There are seven of them. If you're taking notes, you should get them. You need them. They're I will statements. In God's I wills, you can take to the bank. When he promises something, he carries through. Amen? He keeps his word. Number one, I will bring you back, God says. Number two, I will clean you up. I will bring you back. I will clean you up from what? Your uncleanness, your idols, your addictions. Number three, I will give you a new heart. I will bring you back. I will clean you up. I will give you a new heart. Number four, I will put my spirit within you. As a matter of fact, underscoring I will put my spirit within you is God says, I'll cause you to act in my ways. Five, I will renew my covenant with you. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Six, I will save you from yourself. He says, I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will save you from you, from what makes you stumble. I will save you from yourself. And seven, I will meet your needs. I'll make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant. God's seven I wills. 
I'll put a new heart in you. Take that petrified heart out, his seven I wills. Why would God ever do that for the sake of his name? For the sake of his name, he's got a reputation that he guards and that he protects. Like like Kevin and Buzz and the rest of the McAllister kids who think old man Marley is just a mean old man. God has said in Exodus and he's saying again this morning, I am not who you think I am. I am not who you say I am. Well, what happens, thirdly, when God does what he does? Look at verse 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. I've discovered in my counseling of people who are deep in sin, that when God brings them to repentance of their sin, whatever it may be, relational sin or sexual sin or sin of addiction or sin of the tongue, whatever it may be, that when God brings them to this place of deep repentance, there is a grief that I must not stop as a counselor. I must let it work its course. And I have watched people just weep over their sin. I don't want to stop that. I don't want to slow it down. Uh, Earlier in my ministry, uh, I found my compassion to sometimes curtail what God was trying to do. And I've discovered through the years, no, let that run its course. You need a gracious memory of the sin from which God saved you. That's not a bad thing. Notice I didn't say a guilt-ridden memory. I said a gracious memory of the sin from which God has saved you. That's not a bad thing. Uh, uh, the, The Gospels say, whoever is forgiven much loves what? Much. Verse 32, it's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Look at this. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Your sin that is blowing everybody else's minds at some point needs to blow yours. Your sin that is causing everybody to be aghast at some point needs to make you aghast. I find this to be most difficult with with folks who are deep in addiction. Why? The addiction so blinds them that they're unable to see how bad their addiction is. Everybody around them sees it. Everybody around them is like, I cannot believe she is doing this to herself. I cannot believe he is doing this to himself. That's what this verse says. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. There's nothing wrong with that. If your sin never makes you ashamed, if your drunkenness never embarrasses you, your nakedness never shames you, your gossip never grieves you, your lust never hurts you, your trying to fit into the crowd in college never upsets you, you will never know the grace of God. If that never occurs, God's grace will be so far from you. Why? Those who don't think they need rescue and will never grab for the lifeline. Never. 
Many of you know I cannot swim. Um, it's awful. It, it really is. Years ago, I became a youth minister. Years, long, long time ago. One of our first gigs was at somebody's house at a pool party. And so one of the kids decided, wow, Jerry's standing on the side. We should push him in. And so he did. Right into the deep end I went, unable to swim, having no clue uh, how to navigate those waters. And so I did what I knew to do. When you get to the bottom, push up. So I got to the bottom, pushed off with my feet, came to the top. And when I did, they were all standing around kind of laughing. I'm flailing in the water. And I say to them, I can't swim. And they found that to be funny. So I went down again, and when I went down again, there I went, and I'm on the bottom again, and I push off again. I come up for the second time for air and God's grace. Was it to be found among a group of teenagers? No, it wasn't. I said to them a second time, I can't swim. They laughed a second time. 